Well, this is not where I thought we would be this week. I didn't expect to be speaking to you through a screen, and to be honest, I don't like it. I wanna see you face to face. I'd love to, to laugh together and pray together. So this is, this is not ideal, but I wanna encourage you guys to, to be praying, to stay in community as best you can, uh, to be an encouragement to someone else, even today, this afternoon, uh, after we meet together and, and this week. And I would, I would ask that you continue to be reminded of the larger story that we're living in right now. And I, I'm so glad that I am still able to teach and continue our series. And uh, we're, we're three weeks in. It's, taken, it's been hard getting, kind of getting some traction, but we're about three weeks in to the Great Awakening, uh, Living Light and Light of Revelation. And for the past few weeks, we've looked at the way we ought to look and interpret this book. Uh, the fact that this is apocalyptic literature, and like all apocalyptic literature, it's meant to tell us that things are bigger than they seem. For the churches at the end of the first century, for the Apostle John uh, on the Isle of Patmos, and for us today. The revelation was meant to reveal a larger reality so that we can better interpret our, our current circumstances. So with that simple understanding in mind, uh, we're going to read from Revelation 1, 12 to 20 this morning. John has been exiled. He's been state quarantined, you might say, to the Isle of Patmos off the coast of, of Asia, Minor, Asia Minor or modern day Turkey because he was preaching that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, titles which the Roman emperors wanted saved only for themselves. And so in his exile, with many questions about his circumstance, about the circumstance of the, of the church in his day and the world, John is visited by Jesus and told to write a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. And this is what he writes. Revelation chapter one, verses 12 to 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's been a long time since John last saw Jesus. He did ministry with him 60 years ago, watched him suffer and die, saw his resurrected body, but John has never seen Jesus like this. When someone visits me or sees me from high school or elementary school, at the best I get, you look exactly the same, but because they're liars. Because believe me, I looked very different. I've changed. Take a look at this shot. But the last thing that John had on his mind after seeing Jesus after 60 years was, you haven't changed at all. Imagine what it must have been like for John, who was close to Jesus during his earthly ministry 60 years earlier, to now see Jesus in this magnificent glory. And we need to remember, this isn't just a description, it's a proclamation of who Jesus is. The description of Jesus is a proclamation of his fully revealed character to a church suffering persecution from an emperor, an empire that would have them silenced. And, and, and to do what they could to snuff them out. I love what Daryl Johnson uh, says regarding Jesus' solution to the church's circumstance. He says, and how does the Lord respond? By telling John to have the elders form a task force on political terror? No, by giving John a set of new programs to implement in the various congregations on the mainland? No, by calling John to form a resistance movement? 
No, by giving John a strategy by which Christians could slowly displace pagans in public office. No, by giving John more cash for the church's budget. No, God responds by giving John a powerful version of who Jesus is. He needed to see Jesus Christ as he is now. And that's not only what John needed, it's not only what the early church needed, it's what you and I need today. Strength for our current situation is always found in a revelation of Christ's glorified self. And so John writes that it was on the Lord's day, he was worshiping and Jesus shows up. And we see the first magnificent, highly symbolic image of revelation with every aspect telling us something about who Jesus is, each thing revealing something about Jesus' character. As I mentioned last week, about three quarters of Revelation of John is taking imagery and themes from the Old Testament, as do all these aspects of Jesus that we're going to look at. Many of them come from the book of Daniel, who had his own apocalypse, where God was telling his people, I know you're stressed and alone, but I want to reveal something bigger. So what does this reveal to us about, about Jesus? John says that Jesus stands in the middle of the lampstands and is like a son of man. That's code language. In Daniel 7, 13 to 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and, king and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So John is not just throwing out a, a thoughtless phrase, son of man. He's saying that if you've ever wondered who that one was that, that Daniel mentioned, that Daniel prophesied about, who's going to who's gonna have an everlasting kingdom, it's Jesus. He has all dominion, all glory and kingdoms. Not the emperor, not the, the current Domitian emperor, not Rome, not America, not Canada, not Britain, not China. Only an everlasting dominion belongs to Jesus and therefore he must be our first allegiance. John says the one who looks like a son of man is clothed with a long white robe and with a golden sash around his chest. These are the clothes of, of a priest, of one who stands for me and for you before God. John says he has a sash across his chest, not around his waist. Usually when work was being done, a sash was put across around a waist. Jesus does this when he's washing his disciples' feet. The, the, the priest only put the sash across his chest when the work was completed, when it was time to sit. This tells us that the priestly work of Jesus on behalf of you and I, behalf of the world, is complete. The hairs on his head were white, John says, like white wool, like snow. And this isn't about, about age, it's about timelessness and wisdom. Kind of how everybody comes to me for sage advice now with my hair getting a little white. Nobody does that. But it's more than that. John is, John is taking a, another vision from Daniel in Daniel 7 and, and using the language describing a, a God Almighty, but applying it to Jesus. In verse 9 of, of Daniel chapter 7, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. Jesus appears before John as the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One, Son of Man, yet Eternal God. He has eyes like flames of fire, it says in verse 14. These are beautiful images. This represents the, the purifying gaze of Jesus, looking at us and into us. It's a, it's a gaze that looks through our facades. It, it's a purifying gaze, ready to bring light to all that we would rather keep hidden. And it will judge the nations. 
He has feet like burnished bronze. Again, this is from Daniel chapter two. Daniel records a vision of a a statue representing the different kingdoms of the earth, each one having power for a time. In verse 32 of Daniel 2, the head of the image was fine gold. Its chest and arms were of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze. Its legs were of iron and its feet were part iron and part clay. And it could not hold the weight of the world's kingdoms. It could not support itself when the kingdom of God came against it. But Jesus, as John sees him, has feet of burnished bronze. At the time, that was the strongest known metal. This is a king of a different kind than had ever come before, one that's eternal and unbreakable, a kingdom to be reckoned with above all others. Jesus has the voice like the roar of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been close to a river in the middle of the fall or water rushing at Shannon Falls or been on a beach in Tofino when the waves are crashing in and attempting to have a conversation with someone next to you. It can be drowned out. The voice of Christ is like rushing, crashing waters. It's not to be ignored. His voice takes precedence. It must be listened to above all other voices. In his right hand, it says in verse 16, he holds seven stars. Now, fortunately, we have some help interpreting that. And John wants to make sure we get this. Jesus wants to make sure. In in verse 20 of this chapter, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. At first glance, some might be led to believe that each church has its own angel associated with it. The town center has an angel or CA church maybe has an angel. And I think many in the first century believed angels to be more active than we do today. And I believe they are they were correct. But I think the biggest help to interpreting this verse is to remember that the Greek word for angel is angelos, which simply means messenger. Here we see these are messengers of the church. Usually in scripture, when angels are of a, a heavenly variety, they tend to be referred to as angels of the Lord or sent from heaven or from the side of God. But here we have angels of the churches. We don't hear this anywhere else in scripture. It could easily be understood, and I I think in context, that these are messengers who will be taking these messages that John is writing to these seven churches. Maybe visiting visiting John to take these letters, or maybe pastors from these churches who will be sharing these letters with the church. To the messenger of Ephesus makes sense. To the messenger of Smyrna makes sense. But imagine living in a day when, when leaders are disappearing and and churches are despairing to have the cosmic Christ show up with this kind of imagery and say, you're in my right hand. There's nowhere that you are going that I do not control. But these stars also might have had a bit more significance because in John's day, it was believed that there were seven planets in the solar system. So it it could also be a symbol of sovereignty over all of creation. There's almost this, this focusing in from a universal level coming all the way to the leadership and all the way to the community of the local church. And then finally, the cosmic Jesus has a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth and a face like the sun, it says in verse 16. In a noisy world full of stories, full of narratives, many meant to induce fear and demand obedience, the words that proceed from the mouth of Jesus are not to be messed with. They're not to be dismissed. They are sure and steady. His judgments are just and will not be challenged. This tells us at the beginning of this book, everything he's about to tell us, the battle of Revelation that's going to unpack is not fought by ordinary means. The defeat of God's enemies will occur by the testimony of the crucified and resurrected Christ. This is not surprising imagery or surprising revelation. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, 
The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, in a world with so much information, so much knowledge, and so little wisdom, this is important. Eugene Peterson reminds us that Christ's words are not limp. They cut through willful resistance. They divide good and evil. They overcome rebellion and establish righteousness. And we'll see throughout this journey, throughout Revelation, that no one will be able to escape his truth, his testimony, the power of his word, the strength of his judgment. He is an all-consuming light from which we can't hide. Like the sun shining in full strength, everything will be exposed to what truly is. And this all-knowing, this all-seeing Christ is delivering his message to the church, so we better listen. The church, you and I, we're about to get a vision of our situation from a heavenly angle, and that is so needed. So what does this say to an early church at the end of the first century? What does it say to you and I in 2020, in COVID lockdown, in BC, Canada? What does this vision reveal to our church and about the church? Well, John has a proper response in verse 17. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. The very hand that was holding the seven stars, the universe reaches down to touch John and reaches out to you. And I, I would say, and says, Fear not. We do not need to fear. This voice of, of truth, like a, like, a, like a rushing water, drowning out everything else with a, a face illuminating all night, says, I am the first and I am the last. I am the one in charge. I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I and I alone hold the keys. It's not the God Hades, it's not Rome. It's, it's not a thing, that's not a thing to be feared. Our cosmic Christ is the one who opens the doors and closes them. He rules the living and the dead. And here is the, the highlight of the text. And what I want to leave with you today is that this cosmic Christ is near. Jesus is near. And I think this is what we need to hear today. This, this Jesus, the first and the last, the living one, who says to John, let me tell you what you are seeing in this vision, what you've seen and what you're about to see in this vision. The one who has completed all that needs to be done so that the chasm between God and man is remedied. The eternal one, the all-powerful one, the all-wise one, the all-seeing one, with words that cut to the heart, that, that will judge nations and ideologies, the one raised in power who sits above all of creation as king of all. Where is he? Well, verse 13 tells us he's in the midst of the lampstands. He's with his church. The seven churches of Revelation, yes, and with his church, universal and eternal. He is with his church. He is standing with and among his church. In the middle of the churches, the cosmic Christ is a present Christ. The reason he can say over and over in the following chapters that we're going to look at to all these different churches, he can say, I know this about you. I know this about you. I know what's going on in the church. It's because he is present among them. And he always has been through persecution, through politics, through pandemics. He is present. The cosmic Christ reigns on high and in our churches. And I pray in our hearts and minds, animating us to hope and joy and peace. With another week of surprises, of lockdowns and the emotional breakdowns, that come with them, may we never forget that the cosmic Christ is the ever-present Christ. He who holds the seven stars and holds creation together by his word, Paul tells us in Colossians, is with us. May he bless you and keep you. 
May his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he give you his peace this week, the following weeks, the months ahead. God bless you, church. I love you and I miss you.